0: When Mary Blair started working in animation, using color in the reels was not the norm. When Disney was making their short films in post-World War II America, black and white drawings of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck permeated their work, bringing humor and joy to the lives of children. But what they lacked was the colorful spark that Disney would soon be known for. Snow White had come out in 1937, sure, but it was about to be the 1950s and America needed beauty, joy, And most importantly, color. In comes arguably Disney's most iconic early film, Cinderella. For a child growing up in Orlando and having the fortune of visiting the Magic Kingdom frequently, Cinderella feels like as big a deal as the mouse himself. The movie is iconic with its cool and magic blues and dazzling villains. The difference between Snow White and Cinderella is not just 13 years. There's a vibrancy to the palette of Cinderella that is astonishing to look at, and is part of what makes the film last, nearly 70 years after its initial release. Mary Blair is to thank for that. At the age of 40, Cinderella was released with Mary's concept art serving as the foundation for its aesthetic. In fact, so much of Disney's iconic early aesthetic would not be what it is today without Mary Blair. She worked on the designs for this movie with incredible modernistic shades, deep blues against bright blues to create contrast, with cutting white lines separating and accenting all of these big swaths of color. She brought her design brilliance to Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, Lady and the Tramp, The Three Caballeros, and even the famously controversial film Song of the South. As a woman in a company mostly filled with men, Mary's passion and vision shaped everything about what Disney looked like when the parks began to open across the country. Nowhere can you see her art and style more prominent than one of the most famous rides of all time. It's a small world. Her designs and passion for the international world culminated in this ride, initially designed for the 1964 New York World's Fair, where Walt Disney teamed up with UNICEF to create a ride specifically about the children of the world in order to raise money for the children of the world. Mary Blair's love of the greater world and sharp modern designs were exactly right for the ride. It was transported to Disneyland a few years later and opened on May 28, 1966. When the Magic Kingdom opened in Orlando, it was there on opening day. After her time at Disney, she wrote books, even illustrating several of the little golden books that so many of us still have very fond memories of. Her style remained formative to the designers and artists in Disney for years to come. Even after she left, she brought murals to Tomorrowland in Disneyland. It was 1967, and her ceramic tile artwork was just as vibrant and futuristic as it was 20 years ago when she was just a sketch artist on Lady and the Tramp. She was always growing, always improving, and always finding herself more and more in her work. In fact, most people say that her earliest work looked like it was done by three different artists. Later in her career, however, she had figured out exactly who she was. Her last work she ever did for Disney was at the turn of the decade in 1971 at the age of 60. She created a multifaceted mural covering several walls up to 90 feet tall with huge mountains peopled by Native Americans from both North and South America. There are these incredible blocks of striped colors stacked on top of each other in an uneven but still natural way with overlaying shadows and strange curves. The colors are orange, yellow, green, brown, blue, and any combination of these to create a mosaic of Earth's colors. It is bursting with her passion, her modernism, her love of the greater world, and her evergreen style. It was installed and opened to the public on October 1st, 1971, the day that Walt Disney World officially opened. It's still there, almost 48 years later, rising like a monument, reigning over the central atrium of Disney's contemporary resort. Welcome to Wait 5 Minutes, The Floridian Podcast. I'm Nick Sandro. This week, Disney's Contemporary Resort. Its construction, its history, and the important moments in unusual settings. If you've ever taken a monorail to the Magic Kingdom from the Transportation and Ticket Center, you have not only seen the Contemporary Resort, you have been inside the Contemporary Resort. The Magic Kingdom monorail runs a circle around the Seven Seas Lagoon and passes the Polynesian Resort and the Grand Floridian Resort with ease. The contemporary resort, however, is not just a site along the path, it's a tunnel. The building is an A-frame, looking like a triangular prism but on its side. The hotel room balconies go outside, and the interior hallways look out over the spacious fourth floor, with a restaurant and gift shops and Mary Blair's massive beautiful murals. Just above, the track for the monorail runs straight through the middle of the building. Every few minutes one of the classically designed trains blasts through, carrying a small gust of wind and the groan of the mechanics. It's certainly not the most peaceful resort, especially on the fourth floor, but you can see all of the details that would make it the quote-unquote contemporary resort when it was built in the early 70s. Currently it's a bit complicated. There was a massive renovation to the building a decade ago, and it shows especially in the entrance lobby to the building. Through the front doors, nearly everything is angular aside from a massive central column that is covered in blue glass mosaic. Wood panels line the ceiling while modern lighting fixtures and wicker chairs fill the main space. It's fresh down here, and the scent of coffee and the sounds of smooth jazz result in probably the most peaceful spot in the hotel. The third floor is even more precise. This is where the ballrooms and conference rooms are situated. When I visited, a cybersecurity group was holding their 25th anniversary conference and business people roamed the halls. It feels like a crisp museum here, Smithsonian in its design, with clean colors and sharp style. It feels the most contemporary of any of the spots I've visited at the resort so far. And then there's the fourth floor, where the monorail rages through. The space feels more like an airport than a hotel. There are huge ceiling windows with metal frames and an overall color of grayish white. The gift shops and the restaurant chef Mickey's clash, made up exclusively of the brightest colors possible. There's tons of natural light here, but it's kind of a sensory overload. For Disney, which specializes in their ability to create an engrossing sensory experience, the contemporary resort's fourth floor feels like a puzzle made up of six different shapes. Even the elevator is out of character, with these chirpy audio clips of Mickey Mouse announcing the floor you have just arrived on. It's here where I am really met with the unpleasant taste in my mouth. It's because there really is something so exciting happening here that Disney does really well. Nostalgia is an incredibly profitable sentiment in this modern age, and the late 60s, early 70s aesthetic of space-age America is so genuinely enjoyable. The renovations did continue the look and brought it into this simplistic modern interior design. Those two floors that aren't crowded with shops are so calm and transporting, But the colors on the fourth floor do a disservice to those spectacular murals by our friend Mary Blair. It didn't always look like that. The resort was one of two built when the Magic Kingdom opened on October 1st of 1971. The other was the Polynesian Resort directly across the lake from the Contemporary. The Contemporary Resort, however, is right next to the Magic Kingdom, and I mean right next to it. When you arrive at the Contemporary via the road, the most prominent thing in your view is not the hotel. Rather, your eye is immediately drawn to the towering white cone that is Space Mountain inside the park, the icon of Tomorrowland. In fact, original designs of the contemporary resort incorporated a walkway from the resort into Tomorrowland. Walt Disney was famous for having a passion about America's development and future technologies. When Walt found the spots of swamps off of I-4 all those years ago, his vision of the Florida Project, as it originally was called, was quite different. See, Walt died in 1966, so the plans for Walt Disney World changed drastically after. The original idea was the, quote, Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, or EPCOT. And I'm not talking about the park. EPCOT, as we know it, opened in 1982, a theme park dedicated to science, history, and education. The EPCOT we're talking about is not just a name, it is truly an acronym, detailing the sort of concept that Walt had for the Florida land. He intended to build a theme park, Magic Kingdom, of course, but there were other things in the works on this property. He wanted to build Progress City, a truly innovative city of tomorrow. One that was, quote, accident-free, noise-free, pollution-free, end quote. Just two months before he died, in 1966, he showcased his model of Progress City in a little film now informally called the Epcot film. In it, Walt is strutting around with a pointer in his hand, showing us maps and designs and charts strewn about an office set.
1: Here in Florida, we have something special we never enjoyed at Disneyland, a blessing of size. There's enough land here to hold all the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. Right now, our plans include an airport of the He
0: moves now to a massive gray circular map with a rough sketch on it. This is the central part of Epcot.
1: The most exciting, the far the most important part of our Florida project, in fact the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World, will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it EPCOT, spelled E-P-C-O-T, Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Here it is in larger scale. EPCOT will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge? Well, we're
0: convinced- The rest of the film shows beautiful and classic designs with a narrator detailing all of the systems you would encounter, including functioning public transit systems, a business center, and a greenbelt. It is so quintessentially 1966 in its character, optimism, futurism, and the kind of brash hope that could only be found in someone who had so much faith in America's free industry.
1: So that's what Epcot is. An experimental prototype community that will always be in a state of becoming. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future, where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. Everything in Epcot will be dedicated Through
0: to all of the designs of Epcot, the central piece really stands out.
1: This towering hotel is the visual center of Epcot, the shining jewel at the center of the city. It will offer tourists and vacationers not only the most modern guest rooms and convention facilities, but also a seven-acre recreation deck. The narrator
0: here is discussing the Cosmopolitan Resort, the beacon at the middle of the whole idea. In these original designs, it is a towering building, almost resembling a skyscraper. Originally, designs said that it would reach up to 30 stories and would grant visitors a view of the entire rest of Disney World, from the park in the north to the planned jet port that would be on the property at the very southern border. This building was originally designed in a popular style from the 1920s to the 1960s known as International Style, and it was part of mid-century modern design. International Style was everywhere, and I only have to name a few buildings for you to perfectly see it. Picture 30 Rockefeller Center in New York City, with straight lines towering up, growing in height to create a pinnacle of plain right angles and lines. That's International Style. Picture the main terminal at Dulles Airport in Washington DC with huge parallel concrete walls with grid-like windows filling the gaps in between, creating a sweeping vista to the planes as they depart. That's international style. If those don't do it for you, picture even the most typical skyscraper you've seen. If it is a boxy rectangle with straight lines and solid frames, that's international style. It's not called this because it reflects all international cultures, rather it's called this because it can fit anywhere. It's, quote, architecture not rooted to place, but transmittable to all sections of the globe and embodying modern and universal principles, end quote. That very first resort, the hub of Epcot, was designed in this style, reflecting the most modern aesthetic possible at the time. It is the exact same style in which the contemporary resort was built. You can see it now with the clear angles and the simple coloring. Walt passed before seeing Disney World into the future, but that very basic idea of the resort lived into the future of the contemporary resort. They were committed to keeping invention at the core of the contemporary. There is still a transportation hub right smack dab in the middle of the hotel in the form of the monorail station. There is still a wide open natural lighting design to the main floor. They even did something with the rooms that was considered hugely inventive at the time.
1: Instead of being built in place, the rooms for this hotel were assembled in a nearby factory by our American Bridge Division. First came a steel frame, then a floor of poured concrete, wall panels from our USS Homes Division, next the ceiling with air conditioning built right in, then wall covering, a complete bath, even sliding doors. When the units leave the factory, they're trucked to the Even
0: sliding doors. The rooms still to this day are these modular rooms that were built far off-site by US Steel and then shipped into Disney World, lifted by Crane, and slotted into the openings of the A-frame building. Imagine a little room, fabricated perfectly, and then building the shape of the hotel around these boxes that had been literally tucked in like drawers. It's kind of unbelievable. Many of the designers believed that this was the design of the future, the sort of brilliance that would replace the lost vision of Epcot. In spite of this, modular pre-constructed buildings never took more of a hold internationally, and modular building now is almost exclusively used in mobile homes and tiny houses. Nevertheless, the contemporary resort is poised to create a legacy, a gateway to the Magic Kingdom, an echo of Walt's hope for a community that would grow indefinitely. There is an excitement for humanity here, certainly, but Walt was an American through and through, and his dream was that the opening of Disney World, in conjunction with the turn of the 70s, would bring a hope to his country that had never been seen before. Then came Richard Nixon. The Magic Kingdom hadn't been opened for even a year when five men broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate Complex in the nation's capital. Richard Nixon had been president for four years, winning the presidency in the midst of the most tumultuous year in American history, 1968. The sixties had been a battleground of culture for America with President Kennedy's assassination, our further involvement in the Vietnam war and the countrywide movement for civil rights for black Americans. Nixon came into the office swearing that all of those things were the issues of the most extreme branches of the country, the very far left and the very far right. He wasn't running for them, no. He was running for you, the everyday American. His vice president coined the term, the silent majority. It's a term that's been used by Republican candidates for decades beyond, including Reagan and Trump. He ran on the idea that he could bring an end to all these troubles. He could bring us into the future and he could bring us into peace. But Watergate changed everything, though not immediately. Democrats tried desperately to find the hidden ties between Nixon and the Watergate scandal, hoping to bring him out of office in the 1972 election just months after the break-in. They failed, and Nixon won in a landslide. In May of 1973, the Senate creates a Watergate committee to begin investigating ties further. Witnesses emerge saying that Nixon was involved and was behind the whole scheme. Special Investigator Archibald Cox is brought in to settle the whole scandal. In July, Nixon's infamous taping system is revealed, discovering that he, quote, recorded all conversations and telephone calls in his office, end quote. In October, the Saturday night massacre occurs where Nixon demands several members of his team to fire the special investigator. When they each refused, they are each fired one by one until finally the special investigator is fired by the acting attorney general. That was October 20th, 1973. Less than a month later, on his way to his private Winter White House on Biscayne Key in Southeast Florida, near Miami, President Richard Nixon stops in for a one-hour Q&A session in Orlando. Where else would he choose besides the modern and beautiful locale of the contemporary resort outside of the two-year-old Magic Kingdom? Inside the Ballroom of the Americas, on the same floor where I watched cybersecurity officials wandering around just this week, Richard Nixon spoke the words that would define his legacy forever
1: let me just say this and i want to say this to the television audience i made my mistakes but in all of my years of public life i have never profited never profited from public and in all of my years of public life i have never obstructed justice and i think too that i can say that in my years of public life that i welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got.
0: It's here, in Orlando, at Disney, where Nixon showed who he was. The confidence in his voice, the truth with which he says those words, it's startling. Articles of impeachment begin to fly in in the following months as the connections and the obstruction of justice lead to the obvious. Nixon will no longer be the president. In true Richard Nixon style, however... He resigns on August 8th, 1974. It had never been done before. Gerald Ford is sworn in at 11.35am the next day. When we talk about this era of America, we often first talk about Kennedy's assassination, how this loss of innocence truly brought us into the state of the world that we are in today. But that doesn't feel totally right. Kennedy's death feels like the beginning of the most transformational period of our history, but Nixon's resignation feels like the nail in the coffin. Did we still have hope? Was there still a chance for change in America? Civil rights had been won, Vietnam was soon to end, and things looked like they were about to get better, but all these things changed us. We no longer had the capacity to trust our president to do the right thing. We no longer believed that wars were an honorable act to defend peace. We asked for so much, we got so little, and somehow we lost even more. And that's why the contemporary resort lasts. For all of its modern complications and mixed up designs, it's a time capsule, in a way, to when the American dream wasn't just about a house and a job and a car. It was about the future, and it was about technology, and it was about being the very best that we could be and doing it together. We lost that because of Richard Nixon. When he gave his crook speech, he couldn't have made it in a more fitting place. What's more contemporary than a president who lies? So the contemporary lives on. Mary Blair's murals endure as well. Because they highlight a time when massive futuristic cities could be built in the middle of swamps. When America still saw science and technology as a way out of the dark, and when the world still looked pretty small. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, The Floridian Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving it a review or sharing it with a friend. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. I know that you know someone who would love this show. Why not share it with them right this second? I promise I won't mind if you stop listening to me right now in order to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Wait5Minutes, on Instagram at wait 5 podcast, or via email at Wait5MinutesPodcast at gmail.com. I'm always looking for episode topics and would very much love to hear from you. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. All of the video clips used are archival clips and the links to them can be found in the description below along with all of the sites used in the research. Next week, the housing projects in Orlando and the secret of environmental racism. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Please be good to yourself, be good to others, use a reusable water bottle, and with that drink more water. Have a great weekend.